Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to West Meadows, all of you who are here with us on site and those who are joining us online this morning. Anybody check out on site here that pew portal yet? Maybe, yeah. Feel free to take your phones out and just give that a quick uh, check. If we've all been to restaurants the last year, so you know how those QR codes work, same idea. You'll find not just upcoming events, but also uh, sermon notes. As soon as this morning, you can follow along with me, which is a great way to take some personal notes yourself. Also, it'll give you a bit of an indication of how long until I'm done. So that's another benefit of sermon notes that you have there. Well, if you're with us last week, we started a new series called The Story of Moses. And we started by seeing how Moses had what we referred to last week as an auspicious beginning. The word auspicious means, excuse me, it means that there were signs, there were events taking place in his life that pointed towards future success. Now, that may not seem to be the case, particularly in the story, in the time, in the setting in which Moses was born into. If you remember the story, if you're with us last week, you'll remember that he was born into a time when his family and all of his people were enslaved in Egypt. Not a great time to be a Hebrew living in Egypt at that particular time. You'll also remember that by the sheer fact that he was born a baby Hebrew boy, that he was immediately sentenced to death. Very little hope for a man at the start of his life. Not necessarily what we would call an auspicious beginning. But we suggested last week that because God was already present, because God was already moving in spite of the situations, that it was auspicious. There were signs, there was evidence of future success. And I hope that you perhaps related to that a little bit in your own life. Perhaps when you had your life beginning, when you were first born, there were health concerns and not a very auspicious beginning. Perhaps when you started a new job or the new school year, when you started married life or when you entered into an age of retirement, you look at the issues happening around you, you judge it by the challenges within the world and the situations that that season of life was born into, and you didn't feel very auspicious. Well, I challenged you last week. I invited you to not walk by sight, but to walk by faith. And to walk in faith, seeing that when God walks with you, as he was walking with Moses, we always can see opportunities for future hope. So we continue the story today by looking at another challenge that many people do struggle with and many challenges that people find themselves in. Focus around a question, a question along the lines of, who am I? Like, where do I fit in? You know, if you were to survey a group of pastors, you'd find that this question in some form is one of the most common questions that they get asked, especially by people who are coming into a sort of an older teen, young adult season, a time of transition and freedom and choices that quite often a question of this nature comes up. And when I personally counsel people who are going through this bit of a transitional period and help them discern what God's leading may be in their life, here's what I find. I find that they often already have a bit of an inkling. They already have a bit of an idea of what God is leading them towards. But you know what the problem is? The problem is not always that they aren't sure what the next step is. The problem quite often is they don't like it. (laughs) They they don't like what the next step is. That's not what I had envisioned for my future. It's, It's rather disruptive to the current path that I'm on. Or sometimes what he, they're sensing he's leading them towards is challenging a conviction, an idea that they're currently holding on to, a, a comfort zone that they would have to release or step out of, and it leads to resistance. Not only do I know this because I have counseled many people through a season like this, but I know this because I have lived this in my own life. You see, very, very briefly, I sensed a call in my life to enter into ministry when I was 17. 
At that time, I entered into a season referred to as no way, no how God. I fought God for 10 years on went my own way, forged my own path. And if I had failed in that process, I probably would have reconsidered going, okay, well, I keep failing, so maybe I should look at this. But no, that season of life was filled with promotions and bonuses and success and a rather comfortable life for my family and I. But what was the problem? The problem was no matter how much of that I gained, there was no joy. There was no contentment. Anything I had established for myself, it felt like I was trying to hold the, the sand of the beach in my hand, and, and so much it would just slip through my fingers, and what I could think I could hang on to a little bit, the wind would just, just blow away. Why? Because I was making a name for myself that did not match the one God had created me for. I was making a name for myself that did not match the one God had created me for. And as we turn our attention to Moses now, picking up the story where we left off last week, remember the last thing that happened for Moses? The last thing that happened for him is he received his name. His adoptive Egyptian mother gave him the name Moses. But even the name Moses has tension in it. You see, the name Moses is an Egyptian verb that means to give birth to. But the word Moses is also a play on words in Hebrew that means to draw out. And so even in Moses' very name, he's stuck between two worlds. He was raised, he was born and raised according to his Egyptian name, but he was born and destined by God to draw out the people of God. Moses didn't truly know who he was or where he belonged. In some ways, you could say he was a man with no name. And as we continue the story in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11, the author moves very, very quickly through the events of his life because the very next event recorded in Moses' life is 40 years later and serves to further reveal the struggle of a man with no name. You see, Moses was raised and educated in all the wealth and all the privilege, all the wisdom, all the authority of his adopted royal family. But in the back of his mind and in the mind of other people in the royal courts as well, they knew who he was. They knew he was a Hebrew, or otherwise sometimes referred to as an Israelite. One who was in the line of the forefathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And occasionally Moses would get into his chariot and put on his fine royal robes with his entourage behind him. And he would go to be among his people to, to search for kind of a connection with them. And he would sit in his chariot and he would watch his brethren stomp straw and mud into bricks to build his adoptive father's city. And looking for this connection between them, but it, it wasn't mutual. You know, for example, there was one time Moses saw an Egyptian beating one of his Hebrew brethren. And Moses got angry at this. And he looked around and didn't see anybody. And so he thinks, I will be the bringer of justice to this situation. And so like a superhero emerging from his secret lair, he intervenes into the situation and he saves his Hebrew brother, but killing the Egyptian in the process. Well, the next day he sees two of his Hebrew brothers fighting and he goes to them and he goes, stop it guys, why, why would you do this? Can't we just be one big happy family? To which they reply, who made you judge? Who made you deliver over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? Moses was shocked, dismayed. 
He realized that somebody had seen what he had done the other day, and Pharaoh's just looking for an excuse to kill him. And so he flees Egypt, and he goes to a place of Midian, which is about as far from Egypt as Edmonton is from Calgary. It's about how far he went, beyond the reach of the Egyptian officials and Egyptian authority, to a land that is inhabited by nomadic herders. And while he's resting in this one particular region, he comes to a large well where many people gather together. Many people come with their flocks to water their flocks and take a break from the hot desert sun. And he sees some shepherds come along, and they're giving some of the group of young ladies a hard time who are just trying to get water for their sheep. And so Moses to the rescue again. But with more restraint this time, nobody dies this time. <laughs> he simply drives off the bullies. And it turns out that these young ladies that he saves are the daughters of Jethro the priest of Midian, the priest of the land, who hears of this story and his noble acts, and he wants to extend hospitality to Moses. And so he invites him over for dinner. And the dinner goes really, really well. We can assume it went very well because Moses settles in the land and starts caring for Jethro's sheep, and, and he also starts caring for his oldest daughter, Zephora, who eventually marries. And a few years after they're married, they have a son. And they name his son Gershom. Now, the name Gershom, you know what that means? It means, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. Moses essentially named his son after himself. Moses names his son Gershom, saying, I am a foreigner in Egypt. I'm a foreigner in Midian. I'm a foreigner amongst my own Hebrew people. Who am I? Where do I fit in? And while Moses wrestles with this in Midian, his people in Egypt continue under the whip of the Egyptians, and they cry out to God for a redeemer. And now we come to episode two of our story, and another 40 years has passed, and Moses is rather settled into this new nomadic shepherding life. He's a husband, he's a father, he's a shepherd, not of his own sheep, but of somebody else's, his father-in-law's sheep, who he takes to go graze at the foot of Mount Horeb, the sacred mountain of God. And while he is sitting with the sheep grazing, he sees just slightly off in the distance, there's a bush that is ablaze. Now, this doesn't mean too much to him at first, because actually it's not actually all that uncommon for, for bushes to self-combust in the dry desert heat. But this one was different. See, this one, like other bushes he had seen on fire, it didn't burn out. And the fire didn't consume the bush, and, and the fire didn't spread to other bushes. So once he realized there's something different and unique about it, he decides he will go and investigate this strange site, which becomes a pivotal moment, 80 years in the making. We read this in Exodus 3, verse 4. It says, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, the Lord called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Now, there's no evidence at this particular time that Moses was a religious man. But we also know that he wasn't irreligious. He's probably more of the category which you would refer to as agnostic. He knew there was a God or, or maybe multiple gods from his Egyptian upbringing. But he had never really met God or, or didn't necessarily know God. But we can immediately assume he knows he's in trouble. Because, well, bushes just don't talk. <laughs> Even burning bushes don't talk. And, and the bush continued. In verse 6, it says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at these words, all the stories 
all the things that his mother had whispered into his ear back in the time when he was being raised by his natural mother in Egypt. These stories came flooding back to him. And he falls to his knees and he hides his face. Momentous events like this are what we refer to as theophanies. A theophany is a personal encounter with God that happens in an observable way. And they're often, well, they're often uninvited intrusions, if you've ever experienced one. They can cause quite a disruption to ordinary life. That that while they appear in a way that you cannot miss them, here's one thing also we know about a theophany. While they will appear in a way that you cannot miss them, you always have a choice how you respond to them. Maybe you've had an event in your life that was in this category of theophany where God revealed himself to you either, either you know, with one of your senses. Maybe you heard or you saw or encountered something. You have a choice. You can say it was nothing. It was, it was coincidence. Something happened. Maybe I didn't remember that properly. It was indigestion. Something was happening. It, it was nothing. And you can just ignore it and move on with your life. It's an option that exists to all of us. Or we can, we can acknowledge that something happened, something that was curious, something was odd. I can't quite understand or explain how that happened. I, I acknowledge something happened, but I, I'm not going to say it was God because, well, quite honestly, that would change a whole lot in my life. The way I view things, the way I see things, the way I interact with the world, the way I understand myself, the way I acknowledge my worldview. And so I'm just going to acknowledge something happened, but I'm going to move along a parallel path in life to that. Or we have a third option, is we can move towards it. We can move towards it, which is exactly what Moses did. And as he moved towards the bush, then the Lord spoke to him, and then he had this personal encounter with God that was worthy of the history books. And it changed his life. So we read in verse 7 and 8, the Lord said to him, I have heard the cry of the Israelites. It has reached me, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them and to bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey. And we'll talk about this land flowing with milk and honey in the weeks ahead that they journey towards. But for today, I want us to focus upon something else that we see in this particular verse. Part of God's nature Part of the words he says to Moses as he says, I heard the Israelites and it concerns me. And that means that it still has meaning for us today in these words. That's what I want us to focus upon. God knows. God knows. God hears the cry of his people. He heard the cry of the Israelites. He hears the cry of his people today still. God hears the cry of those who are hurting, those who are in pain. God has a special ear for the oppressed. For those who are fearful of dying, for those who are empty because they're lonely, those who have those hidden abuses, those broken relationships, those bouts of depression, those who stay up late at night wondering what is happening with their children or their grandchildren, God knows. And part of the good news of the Exodus story and part of the good news of the story of Jesus Christ is not only does God know, but God acts. God moves. He was moving the life of Moses we saw last week. He was moving in this particular moment as well, and he will continue to move throughout the story. And Moses is excited by this, because Moses has seen the suffering of his people too. He has longed for a connection with them. He has longed to know how can he move towards it, how can he resolve it. He tried to be the bringer of justice, and that didn't work out. But now God is appearing and moving, and so Moses is excited about this. God, how are you going to do it? And by the way, are you aware that you are 300 kilometers away from Egypt? This is the part of the story where the theophany becomes disruptive to a person's life. 
Because in verse 10, God responds, Moses, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Finally, after 80 years, Moses knows who he is. He is part of the Israelite people. Finally, after all of these years, he knows his calling. He is going to bring glory to God, and he is going to bring hope to his people by being their deliverer. As we enter into the third episode of this story today, there's just one problem. He knows who he is. He knows what his calling is. But he doesn't like it. (laughs) He really doesn't like what he's just discovered. Have you ever, perhaps, perhaps you've been there. You carry on a lively debate with God. An effort maybe to change God's mind about something. Argue an issue. Argue a situation that you're having in life. Moses did. He very quickly becomes defensive about this extraordinary calling that he's had. And he becomes defensive because he is convinced that he cannot do it. And this is where Moses' here I am turns into Moses playing a game of yeah, but with God. I bet you didn't know Moses had a big butt. You did. Actually, he had five big butts. Five reasons why this was a bad idea. Perhaps you can relate to this a bit. Ever feel that calling, that, that prompting, like, like somebody or perhaps God even is compelling you to do something that you'd just rather not do? And your response is, is this temptation to, yeah, but the person. Yeah, but I've never done that before. Yeah, yeah, but I don't know how. Yeah, but I'm too busy, too old, too young, too scared. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. I'll let you take the time to read this full passage for yourselves, starting in Exodus 3.11 through 4.17. But here's how it basically sounded to God. Moses, I want you to go to the Israelites, and I want you to go to Egypt and free the people. Yeah, but who who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? This is your typical, you got the wrong guy syndrome. Yeah, but suppose I go and, and they ask me who sent me. I don't even know your name. This didn't come from a lack of uh, this a lack of belief. This came from a lack of, or from a, sorry, a disbelief in himself. This is a version of, I don't know enough to do that. Essentially, God, if they ask me to explain your power, to explain your nature, I have no idea what I'm going to say. The third one, yeah, but what if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to what I have to say? This is the fear of every preacher. This is the fear of every person who has ever been asked to share their faith with somebody. What if I put myself out there? What if I, if, I, if I try to share the faith that I have in God and nobody listens? If nobody cares? If it doesn't make a difference at all? Then the fourth one he offers is, yeah, but I've never been eloquent. I'm kind of slow of speech. Basically, he's saying, God, you need somebody who has got some hustle behind that muscle. Somebody who's got like these persuasive words to go behind the actions you're going to do. And, and quite frankly, God, I, I mumble and have stage fright. So, God, you've got the wrong guy with the wrong stuff. This is not a good idea. Now, if you were in God's position, at what point in the series of these yeah buts would your patience have run out? Maybe the parents and grandparents can think back to when they had kids that were yeah-button them. 
How many times did it take until your patience ran out? One, two, three. Would you let them get to four yeah buts before you put it into it? Well, thankfully for Moses and for us, Psalm 103 says that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in love. Because he responds to Moses each step along the way. He responds to his questions by saying, you will not go alone. I am with you. You will not go along. You will bring the people back here successfully and you will worship me and you will celebrate the works that we have done in their lives. I will be with you. I will give you miraculous signs to prove it to the people. I will be with you. I've already prepared a way. There's already a plan in the works. Your brother Aaron will go with you and both of you will speak boldly with authority before Pharaoh. And when you or anybody else ask about my name, when you ask about my power and my character, here's what you tell them in verse 14. You tell them, I am who I am. You tell them that the I am has sent you. There's something about that name, that the I am who I am. The I am has sent you. See, names carry meaning. They, they, they have an inherent description to them. Without even knowing a person, if you just know their name sometimes, you can know something about them. For example, if I told you, I want you to meet my friend John, he's, he's like Hercules. What could you assume about John? That he's strong, right. If I, if I say, I want you to meet my friend, you know, you know Larry, he, he's, like, he's like an Einstein. Larry, he's what? He's smart, right. If I want you to meet my friend Andrew, Pastor Andrew, he's... Yeah, he's the guy who can't say pew portal. But we already know that about him without even meeting the guy. See, when God says, I am who I am, tell him the I am sent you. Literally, that's translated, I am who I will be. And in this simple phrase, we get this, this impression, this sense of, of simplicity, of necessity, of absoluteness. God is saying that he is the self-existent, eternal, unique, uncreated one. He's emphasizing that he is the one who was and is and will be fully and truly constant. The one who you can constantly trust in and place your hope in. Simply by saying the I am has sent you will bring hope and trust and confidence to the people of whom you speak. And in all of these questions and all of these explanations, God shows incredible patience. But then Moses comes to his fifth and final, yeah, but. Chapter 4, verse 13, he says, yeah, but, God, I don't want to. <laughs> Which is probably the issue in the first place. I don't want to. This is really disruptive to my life, God. And could please, just, just send somebody else. This phrase, please send somebody else, at best... It's like a teenager going, whatever then. Have <laughs> you heard those? Probably heard those before. Whatever. And at worst, it's just an outright refusal, an absolute denial of God's call upon his life. And this is where God's patience ends. This is where it says, and the Lord's anger burned against Moses. Moses, I created you, I called you. I have a job for you. I want you to go. But here's the thing. Even when the tone changes, God never forces Moses to do anything. 
The choice is always with us of how we will respond to the theophanies, the revelations of God in our lives. Now Moses chose wisely because it would be a pretty short sermon series if it ended here. He chose wisely. And in the weeks ahead, we'll see how it plays out for him as he chose wisely and can, goes to, to Egypt. But this whole story, this whole event, there's, there's a word for this. There's a word that summarizes the struggle that Moses had in this moment. There's a word that summarizes, perhaps if you can relate to some of this in certain seasons of your life, or maybe your entire life, as God has revealed himself to you and, and wanted to draw, himself, draw you to to himself to have an eternal relationship with you and, and you've been resistant, you, you, you've pushed back, you've, you've said no and for your whole life or maybe for part of your life. Uh, there's a word for that. There's a word for my life when I felt called and I said no. And the word is this, the word is lordship. It's about lordship. And lordship can be summarized as who will be given dominion? Who will be given authority over your life and the events of your life? And there is no one who has ever lived who has not experienced and wrestled with lordship. They may not have used this word, but the, but the, the sentiment, the, the concept, the situation, everybody, I guarantee you, has wrestled with this. Because there are two primary types of calling that we receive in our lives that all of us have a choice to make. And one of these callings is referred to as our highest calling. And our highest calling exists for all people. This is why I say this is a challenge that everybody who has ever lived has. Because the highest calling exists for all people. And it is when God tries to make himself known, to draw people towards himself so they can have that eternal relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's not just through, it's not just through coming to church and things like that that this happens. Romans 1.20 tells us that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. And they've been understood from what has been made, so people are without excuse. God has been revealing himself to people throughout time, through creation, through the scriptures, which are God's revelation of himself. He's been revealing himself through the lives and the testimony of other people. The fact that you are here right now is because of one or more of these things. If I gave everybody here a chance to come up and tell their story, your story would include some form of combination of a theophany, of scripture, or of another person who shared their life and their experience with you, one or more of those will come up in your story. Because God has a highest calling. He is calling you. He's wanting to make himself known to you so that he can have eternal relationship with you. The purpose of this is 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, where it says, God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of this truth. And when you accept it, when you accept Jesus Christ's call, gift and offering of forgiveness and to enter into that relationship with God through the Son. He becomes your Savior. And once he becomes your Savior, then you continue to live your life striving to make him Lord. And that's the second calling, a specific calling, a specific calling to make him the Lord of your life, where we follow the commands and the teachings of Jesus and in the context of doing so, strive to discover and then align our lives with his will for us. Jesus said very, very simply in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. If you've accepted Jesus, if you respond to that highest calling and have received the forgiveness of your sins, there's some evidence that you have a reason to love him. If you love him as Savior, obey his commands as Lord. 
Why? Because Ephesians 2.10 tells us also that we are God's handiwork and we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That means that you are not a mistake, you are not an accident, you are not needing to stumble through this world, that God created you and gifted you and planned purpose for your life intentionally. And each of us can discover it. And when we discover it, it brings glory to him and fulfillment to us. See, when God makes himself known to us, though, we always have the choice. The choice always rests with us on how we will respond. Remember the three options? Whether we're talking about Moses' calling, our highest calling, or our specific calling. Those three options exist. Remember what they were? It was nothing. It was coincidences. There was no calling. There was no tap on the shoulder. There was no, there was no urging to respond. It, it just ignore it is option one. Option number two is to acknowledge that something happened. There's something stirring in my heart. There's something happening in the world around me. I can't quite explain what it is. I can't explain why I hear the name Jesus. Something within me just bursts with excitement. I can't explain why nothing in this world will fill me up, and yet I feel this longing towards the things of Christ. I can't explain it, but I, I'm going to keep it at a distance. And the second option is just to keep that parallel journey beside it. Not, not ever denying it, but never fully embracing it, which is the third option, to move towards it. And to have that opportunity. And folks, this doesn't have to be on big things. Yes, there's a calling towards eternal salvation. Yes, there can be a calling towards vocation. But it even exists in the small daily things. Each of us have the exact same choice when we feel that calling, that conviction, that compelling to, to serve another person, to, to volunteer in a ministry, to, to tithe faithfully, to stop a sinful habit that exists in our life. We face the exact same choices. Will we release these things, these smaller things in our lives under the lordship of him as well? Because the question will always exist. How will you respond to that feeling, to that conviction, to the compelling call upon your life? Will you let your big butt get in the way? I want you to know this as well. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to share your fears and your resistance with God. Let's just be honest. He already knows about them anyways. And because he knows about them, is it possible he already has a plan for you? Is it possible he already has an Aaron coming to join you in the journey, as he did for Moses. Remember, Moses says, I, I, I know how to talk. I mumble a lot. God had Aaron already on the way to meet him, to go with him. Is it possible if we share our fears, our concerns with God, we'll find that his answer is not get over it, but his answer will be, I brought somebody along to help you get over it, to get beyond it. Remember his words to Moses. I am with you. I will guide you. I will empower you. I will be the source of fruitfulness in all that you do. So it's okay to struggle. It's okay to question. It's okay to, to bring our fears and concerns before the Lord. But it is not okay to reject God's calling. Remember, that is when the Lord's anger burned against Moses. It wasn't when he had questions. It was when he outright rejected. And folks, if we reject these callings in our lives, we're missing out on an incredibly rewarding plan that God has for us. 
a plan that we can experience now. It's what we were created for. It's what we offer to God that he will use for his purposes and he will give purpose to our talents and our passions and the resources in our own lives. But also a plan that exists into all eternity. Because without God, we are stuck as slaves. Without God, we continue as slaves to our sin. Under the whip of slavery of sin, crying out for a redeemer. A redeemer whom God has already sent, and his name is Jesus Christ. The one and only Son of God, who is sent to be the Savior of all people. The one who paid the price for our sins so that we could be set free. As it says in 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself, speaking of Christ, bore our sins in his body upon the Christ. Why? So that we might die to sin. We might be set free from sin. That we would live for righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. Amen? He walked the path set before him his entire life, faithful to the Father's plan. And while he was fully God, and, and, and we go, well, it must have been easy for Jesus. He was fully God. He was also fully human. And we know in his life he had moments of struggle. We know he had moments of fear. Consider, for example, this hours before giving his life for us upon the cross that Peter speaks of in this verse. Just hours before that. He goes to the garden to pray, and there is no more vivid picture of Jesus' humanity on display as the stress and the fear and the weight of this situation is so heavy upon him. He's so anxious. Could you imagine the anxiety to the point where you're, you're, you're so filled with internal angst that you are sweating blood? He brought others along with him to support him. He knew he needed help to get through this moment, and they left him. They failed him. And he's left alone with him and his heavenly father. And we find that as he's kneeling and praying and sweating drops of blood in the garden, in Matthew 26, it says, going a little further, he fell to his face to the ground and he prayed, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. He asked the question. But he never refused the plan because he finished it by saying, yet not as I will, but as you will. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to wrestle with God's plans and callings in our lives. It is not okay to reject them. Jesus knew that, and he got up and he went to the cross. And that is why we worship him. That is why it is in him who we find hope, who we find freedom. In him we find salvation. In him we find our example for today and for tomorrow. Because God is patient. God is loving. God is gracious with our struggles and with our questions, and he will lead us into understanding those, and he'll lead us towards his will for us. But if we choose to reject him, if we choose to reject the convictions that he brings to our lives, then he'll keep drawing you to himself. He'll keep trying to bring you to himself, but he will not force you. He will not force you to receive salvation. He will not force you to receive freedom from that stronghold. He will not force you to receive him as Lord but he will keep calling you because he made the way for that to be the reality of the life in which we live, the new life that we have. And as we take time now to come towards the celebration of communion, I want to give you a moment to reflect upon those very things. Because see, in communion, we celebrate this sacrifice of Jesus Christ that made him worthy to be called Savior. The bread is symbolic of his body, the, the body in which he lived, ministered, was filled with angst, but ultimately offered up in our place upon the cross. 
And he is worthy to be the Savior of our lives, the only one who is worthy to be our Savior. But also when we consider who he was and what he accomplished for us, folks, who else can we put our trust in? Not just for eternal salvation, but for our hope for today and for tomorrow. That is why he was also worthy to be called Lord. And so in the moments ahead as we come to gather around the communion table and to receive these elements to remember and to celebrate and to say thank you, I want to give you a moment just to reflect. And maybe some here need to reflect with the question of, of why have I not accepted him as Savior? There could be some watching online who, who know that they've been drawn to the things of Christ but have never received the things of Christ. Whether you're here with us online or on site, know this, that God loves you and sent Jesus Christ to die for the cost of your sins. There was no other way. There was only him who is the way. And that's offered and extended to us. We simply need to say thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life for me. I believe it was sufficient to pay the price for my sins. As you gave your life for me, I now give you mine. And as he becomes the savior of your life, you step forward striving to make him the Lord of your life. There are those who are gathered here who have done that in the past. But you know there's areas where you struggle to make him Lord still. Let's take a moment now to reflect upon these two callings, our highest calling and our specific calling, and surrender to the Lord.